Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, just a few notes as we continue our march towards 1,000 YouTube subscribers, 1,000 followers on Twitter and on Instagram. Let's continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. Make sure you guys leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. No matter how good or bad, we love the feedback. And if you have a negative review, take the time to send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. That way we can respond to you because we don't get a chance to interact with you guys on the iTunes ratings and reviews, which we certainly appreciate. But if you are serious about something you don't like about the show, please let us know. Take the time. We'd love to have the dialogue with you. It's okay if you disagree, if you don't like the way I do certain things as a host or you don't like the guests or you don't like anything. We're willing to have a conversation and try and make this podcast, this show better because we want it to be about you guys. Not only is it about the stories that we're telling and the individuals tell them, but it's about the audience and about the Hazard Ground community that truly makes this podcast so valuable to so many people. So again, producer at hazardground.com is a great way to interact with us as well. Keep the guest suggestions coming. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Make sure you go to our website, hazardground.com. You can click on the Amazon tab at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. Do your normal Amazon shopping, we'll get a percentage of what you spend, and then we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities that you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. So again, please keep the ratings and reviews coming, keep the comments coming, be an active member of this Hazard Ground community, and now let's get on to an amazing episode with an incredible guest this week on the show. And joining us this week on the podcast is currently a W01 in the United States Army who is a former enlisted Currently still a Green Beret. He had five total deployments overseas to the Middle East. He had three different sets of injuries. Get this, folks. He he was hit with shrapnel. He was shot in the face and also shot in the leg, which ultimately led to the amputation of that leg. And he is currently the only Green Beret to return to combat operations with an above-the-knee amputation. He is Nick Lavery joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Nick, welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Hey, Mark, good to talk to you, man. I appreciate the time. Well, your accent gave you away as a Bostonian, so we also want to congratulate you for being in the UMass Lowell Sports Hall of Fame. That's where you got your start as a, a football player, correct? I'd say I got my start as a football player when I was six years old, but that's uh, absolutely <laughs> where I ended my career was at U Lowell, correct? All right, so uh, after college and everything else, how did you get into the military? So... I started taking a look at the military from a really early age. I was interested in it as a kid, um, growing up either in the woods or in the streets, you know, playing, playing soldier, playing commando. I caught the bug a little bit more uh, later on in life, early in high school, by my freshman, sophomore year. Um, I started considering it. Actually, I, I wanted to be a Marine, you know, back in the day. The uh, the Marine Corps commercial, this guy climbing a mountain. He I remember it. Sword, he yeah. takes down a dragon <laughs> or whatever. I like, that's, that guy's the ultimate badass. Like, I needed to be that guy. Um, met with the Marine Corps recruiter my sophomore year of high school. And he was like, yeah, man, graduate high school and come back and, and we'll be good to go. So 
that was kind of my path. It wasn't until about my junior year uh, and then more so into my senior year of high school, I started getting looked at to play football. Um, and that's ultimately what led me to go to college instead of enlisting right out of high school. Um, so I did that, uh, was not an academic by any means. Uh, sports was the only thing that really kept me on any kind of track. And, uh, you know, my sophomore year was, was nine 11. And, um, you know, everyone that was alive at that point, you know, can pretty much remember that where they were on that day and that moment and, uh, getting back, you know, classes were canceled. I didn't know what was going on. I got back to my dorm, threw on the television and it's on every single channel. And right there and then I was like, that's it. I'm dropping out of school. I'm enlisting right now because I knew we were going to war. And, uh, you know, I ended up listening to some mentors of mine and I managed to grind out my degree. And, uh, and then I looked at options to enlist right after that. Why did you end up changing from the Marines to the army? So after I graduated college, I began doing research and I was, I was confident that I wanted to go directly into the special operations community. Um, went into the recruiter station and they had Marines, Navy, and Army all in the same building. And I went to the Marine Corps first, and I talked to them about their special operations uh, options. And they were like, yep, we got some stuff, but you need to enlist as a Marine. And then you can request to go over to do that kind of stuff after. I said, okay, cool. I'll get right back to you. I walked down the hall, walked into the Navy's office. I said, hey, what's it going to take for me to be a SEAL? They kind of had the same answer. They're like, yep, enlist in the Navy, do some time, drop a packet, and then go for it. I said, cool, I'll be right back. I walked down the hall, <laughs> talked to the Army, same question. They were like, hey, we've got this option right now called the 18 X-ray contract or the Special Forces Recruit Option, and we'll give you a shot to go straight into SF. I said, okay, great. Went back home, spent about two or three days doing some research, and not only did that provide me the opportunity to go straight into the special operations community, but uh, after do doing some research, it really was what I was drawn to most. That being the the small team dynamic, which you know really exists across the, the soft communities, but mm -hmm. the the wide array, array of of mission sets that SFODAs are expected to be proficient in. So I, I was drawn to the broadness of what ODAs are intended to do. You know, to that end, it, it, it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of guys and, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording that I, I've, you know, deployed in that community. So I understand it a little better than most guys who haven't uh, ever, you know, been on the inside of it. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts now on how much easier it is to become a Green Beret or get into the special ops community because there's such a need for it now, right? I mean, it's so much more of a, a open public thing. You know, I always remember when I was walking around Fort Hood on active duty, like this was prior to 9-11, you don't, you know, you didn't hear anything about special forces. Like I remember driving past the sign and wondering what the hell it was, but I know that like, I always look back and I feel like I was the type of guy that had I known about it, I would have went, ran towards it back then, but you know, it just wasn't out there the way it was now. So I'm curious to know why you were so drawn to the community and how you feel about it now that it's so much of a wider base of, of the military. Yeah, so growing up an athlete, playing athletics at the collegiate level, I was much more brawn over brain back then. Mm -hmm. And I was confident 
humbly speaking, that my athletic and physical abilities could be best suited in a special operations capacity. Got it. Um, and to, to, to the second point of your question, uh, yeah, the, the demand has certainly gone up, particularly over the last 20 years. We've been focused predominantly on the CT fight and the special operations community is, is charged with dealing with counterterrorism. So there's been a hyper focus on that the last 20 years and th- that requires numbers. Now it's ironically kind of a touchy subject, especially nowadays on the SF side, given kind of the optimization of the Q course and the SWIT command trying to find the balance between getting the numbers they need to fulfill the requirements without degrading the quality stocks without degrading the quality. And you know, that's a balance that's gone on historically since the beginning of, of time is certainly the beginning of soft and it will likely continue to go on. I don't know if there is a perfect balance. It just kind of tends to teeter tot back and forth. The older guys, you know, obviously are all grumpy and they get really aggravated about the standards being lowered. And, you know, my class was the last hot class and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there's a, there's a there's a perfect solution, but the SF community, particularly the demand for ODAs across the T-Socks are enormously high. Um, and that's really kind of because the multi-tool aspect of what ODAs bring to the table. You can you can send nine, 10, 11, 12 guys into a mission set and they're designed to be able to solve just about any problem. Now, there's there's no specific niche. You know, Green Beret isn't an expert at anything. He's just pretty good at everything. So that coupled with such a a, a, a very low public tolerance for the loss of American life right now, um, that roads those roads kind of equal to the ODA being the solution to the problem. That force multiplication aspect of what we do, train, advise, assist. But then you can also be responsible for conducting direct action type missions. Um, So the demand is certainly out there. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. No, I do think SF in particular um, can do a better job at promoting what we do while also maintaining the quiet professional uh, model that we live by. there's, There's a difference between being a quiet professional and being a silent professional and I think you're starting to see that more and more now within the SF community where we are getting out there more. We're messaging what we do um, because we need the bodies, but we need to also maintain the the quality of the product. Yeah, it's a definitely a, a tough dynamic. And, and I think in any school, uh, in, whether it's SF or even any just military school, Nick, you see sometimes guys slip through the cracks. It happens, right? Sometimes less than stellar guys get through. I mean, it's the old adage, right? Somebody in medical school got a C and they still become a doctor, right? I mean, it just, it, it, it happens. It's sort of just natural selection, if you will, that somehow they get through, but that doesn't mean that the, the process is flawed or it's broken or it necessarily needs to be changed. But I think there's such a hypersensitivity, uh, especially from guys like yourself on the inside who, who are seeing the lesser products sometimes get injected into the field, so to speak. I mean, you can tell, I think if you think back in your experience, and correct me if I'm wrong, you could tell the newer guys and 
you know, how they graduated versus some of the older guys and what they know just from kind of their learning curve, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does, man. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, optimized Q course or not, the, the, the younger guys that are coming up and getting onto the teams nowadays overwhelmingly are, are physical specimens. And the only real thing that lets you know right away that they are, in fact, a very new guy is just their understanding of what it is we do at the operational level, the strategic level. You know, they haven't had the chance to to learn the cognitive and the intellectual side of our business. But these guys are in phenomenal shape. I mean, there's yeah. some there are some 21, 22 year old kids that are showing up to teams that are just absolute animals. Um, so I think the overwhelming majority of the guys that we're getting even today are are very high caliber. And you, to your point, regardless of how stringent any selection process or training process is, you're going to get guys that slip through. And then it's just at that point, the onus of the team and the command to either fix that problem if it's fixable or, you know, it's time for that guy to exit stage left and find some way to support, you know, other than being a guy on the team. All right, let's get back to you. All right, so you sign your SF contract. Timeline-wise, where are you? How quickly do you get through assessment and selection to the Q course and everything else? Take me through that. So, drop my I, I entered the military August 2007. Um, I was in selection March of 2008. Got through the Q course. You know, this is the pre-optimized version, and there was a ton of white space in between different phases. So, I didn't graduate the Q course till early 2010. Um, you know, I went straight through, uh, honor graduate originally was assigned to third group out of Fort Bragg as an 18 Bravo. Um, got there, got to my first team was on my first deployment to Afghanistan. Not, not long after that, uh, nine month pump. And, um, that's really where I caught the bug, man. I, I mean, I, again, I knew what I wanted to do, but after that trip, um, I knew that this profession was, was more of a lifestyle for me than it was a job. And I was all in on this profession and, and this lifestyle. And all I did and wanted to do was train. I was either in the fight house, the weight room on the track, reading training manuals in the arms room, tinkering around with stuff. I didn't quite understand. Uh, I was completely engrossed within this job, within this, within this profession. Um, got back from that first trip, uh, typical, um, training schedule from that point, mm -hmm. bunch of individual schools, collective training. Um, I actually switched and went to a more direct action focused ODA in between my first and second trip. And, uh, and then I was off back to Afghanistan on my second combat rotation. Um, and that's the trip where, uh, where things got things got a little interesting. Well, let, before we get to the second deployment, let's talk about kind of that first deployment and that first experience for you, you know, for somebody who, as you said, realized this is what you wanted to do. Did sort of the deployment live up to your expectations? I'm not sure what my expectations were, um, of that first trip. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's drinking from a fire hose and, and you've been there yourself. So 
you're trying to take in all this stuff that's going on. I'm still trying to learn my job. Um, I'm in Afghanistan. Obviously, that's where I wanted to be from the second that I knew we were going to war. So you're finally there. And you kind of have these expectations of all these all these images of World War II and Vietnam. And you know, I got nothing to really base anything off of. And, uh, you know, so it, it's not obviously it's not like storming the beaches of Normandy. Right. Right. But, <laughs> um, you know, once you get settled and start and start running operations and whatnot. And then it, that that just becomes that just becomes normal. And even even things as exciting as, you know, getting into, getting into, in the text and whatnot, just kind of becomes routine part of, uh, yeah. part, of, part of conducting business. Right. So, um, my expectations were met as far as my excitement and knowing I wanted to be there. Um, but it was a lot for me to take in and process over the course of nine months. Did you feel like when you got to your second deployment, because you had that first one that, you were better prepared. Yeah, I think that. Um, yeah, every deployment, you know, kind of brings about a lot, a lot of, a lot of lessons learned. And you know, we train back here in the states or or, or abroad to go down range and do our thing. But you, you learn the most when you're actually doing it, um, and that really goes to say with just about everything. Um, but you know, that being said, every deployment's different. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's like the expression, if you've been inside one embassy, you've been inside one embassy because they all operate differently. Um, who you're working with, where you're working, where you're working, what's the enemy situation, all these variables, travel dynamics. So it's very important that even though you're going back to Afghanistan again, that you treat it like it's your first trip in a sense. You still have to do the homework. You still have to prepare. Um because if you don't, it's really easy to get complacent and just kind of look at it like, yep, just another rotation, no big deal. Um, and that's where I think things can, uh, can, can get ugly. So yeah, I was absolutely prepared. You know, that first trip, no one ever forgets it. Um, going back the second time, you know, I was able to apply a lot of the lessons learned in that first trip. And I, I felt like I was in a much better place and, and much more prepared for what I needed to do. Well, you didn't learn on the first deployment how to take shrapnel, so you did on the second one. Uh, what happened in that experience? Yeah, so that was pretty early on in the trip. Um, we'd only been on the ground maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a few weeks. And uh, that second trip, we were doing VSO um, in Wardak province, you know, working up in the mountains, completely isolated, the, the ideal SF mission. Um, and what is VSO again? Village stability operations. Ah, gotcha. Um, the, the, the general concept is that, you know, you take an SF team and you put them in a location within the particular living parameters of the locals. If you go and you build up these giant bases and you start building towers and whatnot, you know, when we eventually transition, assuming that happens, then you, you leave a, a mecha mechanisms in place, physical infrastructure in place that is unable to be supported by those that are still there. So you try to assimilate to the environment that the locals live within. So it's a super low signature and it's done that, that way by design, um, isolated from most support. Um, so you're kind of out there on your own, you know, aside from a couple other ODAs that work in the somewhat vicinity that are support, um, 
you were kind of left to yourself, which is what I think most ODAs are looking to do. Yeah. So we were <laughs> super excited about that. Um, and it proved to be just that. I mean, our white space was, you know, maybe 10, 25 meters in any direction. Uh, this, the first time we went out to go do a, uh, ALP Afghan local police checkpoint, um, we went to go just go check up on the guys. We made it, you know, maybe 30 meters outside of our little, little camp. And, you know, we were in a gunfight, you know, so we were, we were surrounded. We were in a hornet's nest and we knew that that was the case. Um, it was on us to expand that white space and, and continue forward with our mission. Um, the first time I was wounded, uh, we were going down. I believe we were going to go, go do a KLE or something. And we got ambushed, which is pretty typical. Um, you know, we do our thing. We stop fire maneuver. Um, we're, we're clearing through a village, um, get to a breach point and uh, boom, something explodes in my vicinity. And, uh, I take a bunch of shrapnel to the back of my shoulder. Um, felt like I got hit with a sledgehammer. I was pretty certain I knew what it was. Uh, plugged it with some, with some curl X wrapped it up. You know, we Charlie mic'd, do what we needed to do. Uh, you know, eliminated the threat, got back to the vehicles, mounted up, uh, head back to the house. And, uh, you know, my medic decided that because of the size of the cavity that, uh, I needed to be medevaced. I threw a, uh, completely childish temper tantrum, um, <laughs> cause I had no interest in leaving. Uh, I eventually did what my team sergeant told me to do, got on a helicopter, uh, got flown out. And, uh, you know, got some treatment. Were you for, in pain? A uh, couple weeks. Was I in pain? Uh, you know, not really. You know, especially not when it first happened. You know, the adrenaline's going. Right, sure. It's kind of a shock to look at the back of your shoulder and there's a lemon-sized hole sticking, you know, in it where where your shoulder's supposed to be. So, you know, but you grab some colics throwing on. At that point, you're still, I'm still all pumped up. I really didn't feel much. Um getting it packed you know as far as my treatment is concerned you know they pack it with this antiseptic gauze they do it once or twice a day that's to allow the cavity to heal from the inside out because if they just try to sew it shut it'll leave an open cavity that can promote infection um so daily that process you know kind of sucked but it it wasn't anything that was uh you know too catastrophic to deal with how long did it take you to get back in the fight so uh, this is kind of a funny story. I got I got medevaced to where the uh, the AOB was located, um, out of Fob Shank. So I'm at I'm at uh, I'm at Shank and I'm getting treated. I'm getting real antsy. I'm there like two days. I'm like I got to get back to my team. And the doc who was working out of out of Camp Montron at Bagram was basically like, no, man, you need to stay until this thing basically heals completely because we're worried about infection. Um, I really wasn't interested in that. So I, uh, I had a buddy give me a ride down to the, down to the tarmac. I went from C-130 to C-130 until I found a plane that was flying to Bagram. <laughs> I got on it. I asked if they'd give me a ride. They said, okay. I flew to Bath. I showed up at the Sodif talk completely unannounced and uh the entire sort of command team was like what are you doing here and i'm like i need a helicopter ride back to my team right now and uh they were confused as to why i was there and literally right in that moment the phone rings 
and it's my AOB sergeant major who's calling. <laughs> and the he wasn't happy, was he? Sergeant, <laughs> he? He wasn't. He wasn't super super happy with me at that time. He, he, so the sergeant major gets on the phone. I can hear my company sergeant major screaming on the other end. He hands me the phone. Uh, I get yelled at, um, and then at, at the end, he's like, "Okay, I understand." what you're doing just you know don't ever do that again kind of thing and i said roger that so i basically demanded a flight uh back to my uh back to my site and while i'm standing in the talk my team is actually out conducting a mission and they get into a gunfight oh wow and this was actually my very first time ever standing in a talk or a jock so the uh you know television monitors all over the place red light flashes essential personnel only kind of thing they're spinning up air. My team sergeant was shot and I'm watching this on a monitor and um, I'm losing my mind completely at this point. Um, it took a couple guys to kind of try to calm me down. And uh, I basically said, if you guys don't put me on a helicopter, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to get back there right now. And uh, the doc wasn't super thrilled. He interjected. He's like, no, my orders are you to stay until you're healing until you're done healing. And the, uh, the sort of sergeant major looked at him and said, Hey doc, do you really want to tell this guy that he's not, he, he can't go back to his team. And, uh, they put me on a helicopter the next night. So I was back with the guys about three, four days after I was, uh, after I was initially injured. Now, would you have been on that mission even though you were injured? Yes. Okay. And that kind of really is what, uh, what set you off, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. The, so the next, the next couple, two, three weeks, um, you know, I, I, I went right back into conducting operations and, you know, sure shit within the first uh, 20, 30 minutes, I'd look over and I, my, my bandage would be completely bled through. I'd be bleeding down my arm. I'd be bleeding all over myself. You know, my, neither myself, my medic would kind of patch it back up whenever we had a chance to, to take a break. But, uh, that was just kind of standard for the next, I don't know, month until my wound closed up enough to, you know, stop bleeding all over myself. How big is the scar there? Uh, right now it's, I don't know, it's probably about the size of like a small tomato. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. By the way, I love it when uh, the, the version of Special Forces guys getting in trouble is, all right, all right, just don't do that again. Like that, that's, that's <laughs> like, it always amazes me. You know, when I hear guys who really get in trouble in the SF community, it's like, you really got to mess up, like hardcore. You know, there's a lot of forgiveness because you guys all act like adults and uh, everybody's working towards the greater common good. But I just, I, I've heard that so many times. You get the old, all right, just don't do that again kind of spiel from somebody who's in charge because I think you all kind of understand the nature of the business that you do. But anyway, um, okay, so you get back in the fight. And then uh, you get shot in the face, which is, you know, not something everybody can say that they've lived through. Yeah, so this was now November 27th, so maybe maybe a month or so after my first injury. Um, similar circumstance, we're actually coming back from, from a mission. We get ambushed, and uh, this ambush was initiated by what was estimated to be about a 300, 350-pound IED, which took out our lead vehicle. Um, I was in the trail vehicle working out of a turret. Uh, it literally happened right in front of me. Boom. Um, nothing but dust. And I see a, a Matt V being picked up and thrown off the side of the road, like a rag doll. 
and my friends being jettisoned through the air. And uh, that was obviously a shock. We had hit some IDs. We dealt with some IDs prior, but this was the first catastrophic situation with an IED. Um, I was probably six, six, seven hundred meters back in the in the trail vehicle. And as soon as it happened, I knew everyone inside the vehicle was dead. That was convinced. Um, we begin to react. I jump out of the hatch. I jump off the truck and I take off in a dead sprint towards the vehicle, which is not what we're trained to do. And it's not something to this day I'm proud of. Um, and not something that I, I certainly don't advocate and teach. You know, we we have react to contact, react to IED SOPs, and I did not follow that. Do you when you think um, back, do you know why you didn't follow it? Because a lot of guys will always tell me, Nick, they'll always say, Well, training kicks in. Training kicks in, right? In those moments, training just kicks in because you've done it so many times. Why did training not kick in? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And uh, you know, I'd say nine times out of 10, that is the answer. It's just, you follow muscle memory and repetition and that's what training does. It breeds repetition and it breeds reaction. Um, I think that in that moment, I was concerned for my friends that were in that vehicle and my commitment to them as individuals superseded my training. It's, that's the closest answer I can I can think of, um, and this kind of similar circumstance will come up again here in a second as we progress. Um, and I think that I think just my love of my teammates took over my, what my body was doing, and uh, so I moved I moved to the truck. You know, about a four hundred meter sprint. At no point was I tired or fatigued, and at this point, it's RPG PKM. Uh, AK rounds, you know, full-blown ambush. I get in, in the vicinity of the vehicle, and at this point, it's off on the side of the road. It's on its driver's side door, and I'm maybe 20, 30 meters from it, and I, I jump off the side of the road. It was in this apple orchard, and I begin moving towards the vehicle, and I trip and fall, and I look down, and I actually tripped over one of my teammates. He was operating the turret of that truck, Fellow 18 Bravo, we went through the Q course together. Uh, to this day, one of my one of my best friends, and uh, I I was in shock. It's like holy, sh- this is, it's you, and he's alive. He's obviously suffering from severe initial blast injury. His right leg or his left leg is uh, snapped in half, just below the knee. Um, I begin to do a quick assessment of him, and I start hearing some gunfire coming from a really short distance away. I look over and there are three enemy fighters moving in towards the vehicle, just kind of blindly shooting at the truck. They're maybe 20 meters away from me. So I make the decision to engage the enemy. This is where training actually does kick in. Mm -hmm. Thankfully Uh, that said, still, it's still a difficult thing to do. You know, your one of your brothers is laying there asking you for help and you have to leave them. That's, an image that will never leave my mind, but I do. Um, I eliminate two out of the three targets. The third one takes off running. I begin, uh, I begin maneuvering towards him, returning fire. He's shooting at me or in my direction over the back of his shoulder while running away, kind of running almost at an angle. 
And I'm continuing to maneuver. And all of a sudden I'm looking up at the sky. It was like someone hit me in the face with a baseball bat. And my initial thought was I had run into a tree branch because I'm kind of maneuvering through this apple orchard. I had no idea what actually hit me. I just, I just knew I was looking up at the sky. So I pop up and I'm like, okay, I'm fine. I go to continue on doing what I'm doing. I happen to glance over and now the Matt V that hit the IED is on fire. So at this point, I still don't know if anyone's in the vehicle. I'm not sure the status of any of my buddies. I decide I need to check the inside of the truck. So I move, I move to the truck. Again, it's on its driver's side door. Thankfully, the passenger side door, which is facing the, the sky at this point, had been blown off the hinges because that was the only entry point that I could see. It was basically a, just a pile of metal at this point that's now on fire from the back of the truck moving towards the cab. So I climb up the side of the truck. I look in and uh, I only see one person and it's our detachment commander. And he's wedged down now where the driver's seat would be. And um, I look in, truck's on fire. Some of the rounds from the inside of the truck start cooking off. So it's mm -hmm. like looking inside of a popcorn bag in the microwave, you know. We're still taking semi-accurate PKM fire, uh, RPGs sporadically. It's a it's an it's an ugly situation. And I'm standing up there and I pretty much accepted the fact that both myself and my team leader were gonna die. That that we're not making it out of this one. It was just too ugly of a scenario. Uh that said, I, I wedge myself into the truck. I grab him and I start kind of shimmying him up towards the towards the passenger door. He's a he's a big boy, man. He's uh played offensive line at West Point. You know, six, 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 seven, about 300 pounds without his equipment. Um, a big dude. And it was kind of ironic because we used to joke as a team that myself and our captain, we can never ride in the same vehicle because if one of us was injured, the other one is the only one big enough and strong enough to carry <laughs> the other one. Um, hindsight, obviously, being kind of 2020 and in our sick and twisted doc humor that we have in SF, that, that turned out to be a reality. Yeah. Um, so I did manage to, to pull him up out of the vehicle. I kind of threw him off the side at this point, a bunch of my buddies had shown up. So they were able to take him, move him away from the vehicle. We rounded up the rest of the passengers as amazing as it is. Everyone was alive. Everyone is still alive to this day. Some suffered from pretty severe injuries, uh, loss of eyes, loss of limbs, burns, TBIs, etc. Um, it wasn't until we set up a CCP and got the situation relatively under control, began treating our casualties, calling it a medevac, that um, one of my teammates came over and said, hey, man, you, you, you took a round to the face. And I was like, no, 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 I just I hit like a branch or something. And he's like, no, you definitely took a round to the face. I hadn't seen myself at this point. Um, that was the first time I kind of took a pause and uh, – I, he, he had given me some gauze. I put it up in my face. I looked at it. And it's just completely soaked in dark red blood. So I had been bleeding uh, pretty profusely that entire time. And it wasn't until I actually saw the blood that I started to get a little lightheaded. It was like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> I've, I, I've probably been bleeding here for a good amount of time. Um, that didn't deter me from what I was doing. You know, focus was on the guys that were seriously injured. Um, we continued to treat them. Medevac birds began showing up, pulling out guys by priority. And once again, my medic decided that I needed to be medevaced uh, to, for treatment. 
I threw yet another temper tantrum that uh, didn't didn't do me any good. I did insist. It's starting to be a pattern, waiting. Nick. <laughs> it was definitely a pattern. Yeah, I uh, I waited until QRF got there, and the situation was was completely secure. And then I eventually got onto a helicopter and flew to Bath uh, for medical treatment. What do they tell you in. the extent of the damages to your face? Like, wh- where did the bullet enter? So it really just grazed my cheek. Okay. Uh, fortunately, another half inch or so to the right, and uh, I, I definitely wouldn't be as, as pretty as I am today. Um, fortunately for me, there was a national, or not a national guide, an army reservist doc that was working at a Bagram who in his civilian job is a plastic surgeon. Oh, wow. So, uh, he's the guy that I'm talking to and um, I'm still completely fired up and aggravated and angry and adrenaline's pumping. And he's like, all right, man, I'm going to give you some, um, give you some pain meds, give you some local, get this thing taken care of. And I'm like, Nope, no pain meds. I need to be coherent to be there for my guys that are, that are really injured. He's like, I can give you some local, man, but the only way I can fix this is I have to cauterize the artery because it clipped one in your face. So basically, I have to go in there with a little mini welder and weld it back together. He's like, it's really going to hurt. I'm like, well, then just let's just go, you know, just do it. So he's like, all right. So he gives me a little a little local, a little lidocaine, um, you know, sticks a uh, a welder inside my face, puts it back together. It's a uh, weird to smell your own face burning. That's something I also probably want to forget. Um, wrap that up. And then, uh, yeah, then I was just there spending some time with uh, the guys that were banged Nick, up. Nick, while Nick, they were Nick, 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 stop. Just hold on a second. You're not going to gloss over the fact that you took no painkillers and he cauterized your face. I mean, you, this experience, man, I mean, were you screaming? Were you just gritting your teeth? Did you bite down on a stick? What happens here? Uh, well, it, it actually began with the uh, where the, the medevac guys wanted to give me um, a fentanyl lollipop. They're like, "Here, take one of these." And, uh, I'm like, "I'm like, is this good?" I'm like, "Is this fentanyl?" He's like, "Oh yeah." He's like, "You're you're gonna feel real good in about two minutes." I'm like, "Nope, I don't want it." He's like, "No, man, really. Like, you can take this, and it's gonna, it, it's fine." I'm like, "Get away from me." And so I had kind of the same the same mindset when I got into the hospital, I'm like, Nope, I don't want anything that's going to make me sleepy, tired, groggy, nothing. Just do whatever you got to do. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I think I literally bit on a stick. I just laid on my side on a table, stared at my buddy who was next to me, whose leg is snapped in half and who doesn't know where he is. He's dealing with internal injuries from the IED and staring at him. Who's 10 feet away from me being treated made what I was dealing with literally nothing. So that, that was how I got through it. It took maybe wow. 10, 15 minutes, not a big deal. Uh, my focus was on those guys, get this over with so I can be bedside to my brothers who are actually injured. In retrospect, do you wish you had taken the painkillers? No, I'd do it the exact same way right now. Now, you, you, your buddy who had his leg mangled that you were mentioning that you had to leave to go take care of the enemy who was there, uh, you said it bothered you that you left him. Um, why does it bother you if, if he ends up surviving? I mean, you ended up saving the life of your, probably your, your captain, um, you know, your team leader uh, who was in the truck. Because if you don't go into that truck, either everything cooks off and kills him or he just bleeds out before you can get there. So why does that moment bother you so much? 
You know, Mark, I, I can't say that it bothers me. You know, hindsight, of course, being 2020, um, I made the right call. Yeah. I yeah. will, however, n- never forget the feeling of looking into the eyes of one of your boys who you love, right. who is staring at you, literally gasping for air and, and begging for your help to have to leave that individual. Um, I do the exact same thing tomorrow if I needed to. It was the right call to make. But just in that exact moment, that two second moment of your boy saying, help me. And you saying, I got to go. Um, it's just, it's just, a, it's something I just won't forget. You know, it doesn't bother me, but I, I won't forget having to make that choice. No, I mean, listen, when, when you tell it, it tugs at my heartstrings, man. Like it, my heart breaks for you. Like I, I, I can empathize with that moment, um, you know, in, in having to make a split-second decision, and thankfully, again, as you said, it was the right one. Uh, I understand better why that moment sticks with you, um, but he ended up surviving, obviously, and, and you still talk to him today, to this day, I assume, right? Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah. hey, listen, I mean, uh, uh, God takes care of those who take care of others, so to that end, I think uh, you did exactly what you are supposed to, and uh, obviously, you know, your wounds – being what they were, how quickly did you recover? That was a pretty quick turnaround. I was at Bath for, uh, you know, maybe three, four days. They, they, they sewed it together. And um, we were on a, a slight pause stand down operationally, given the amount of guys that we just got that had just been banged up. Yeah. So I was still in a, an immediate rush to get back there, but um, it wasn't, quite as urgent as it was the first time given that i was standing there watching my guys in a gunfight the first time i was injured um this time i knew the guys were just kind of going through recovery process and 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 refit uh that said i need to get back there right away and based on the way i handled the first time i was medevaced um you set the precedent Yeah, man. No one was was gonna even really try to keep me there any longer than I needed to be. So it was maybe three, four, maybe five days, and then I, I was back with the guys. What's the scar on your face look like, dude? That that uh that plastic surgeon doc, man. He's uh he's very talented. There, there is a scar, but it's um it's a it's a really small one. You know, it's maybe two inches. It just kind of goes across my cheek. It's it's no big deal. Uh, chicks dig scars, I suppose, right? That that is the same. <laughs> yes. Okay, so uh, you survive those two. Uh, do, at any point in time, do you feel like because you're going to go back for another deployment, correct? Do you feel like your number is going to get called? Because I remember, I remember that feeling all the time. Like you know, I was charged with you know uh, training, and we did foreign internal defense. So I you know I, I helped stand up an Iraqi support battalion, and. A lot of our missions were going to get supplies from point A to point B, and I, you know, I, I have thousands of miles on the on the streets of Baghdad and Iraq, and and I always there were mornings I would wake up where we know we were doing a run to go get something, where I would just feel like, damn, today's the day. Like, how many more times can you roll the dice and come close without your number actually being called? Did that feeling ever pop in your head? No, man, it, it really hasn't. And, uh, you know, we kind of joke about it, you know, again, kind of that, that twisted doc humor that we have where, oh, it's like, hey, man, when the rounds start cracking, you don't want to be anywhere near Nick because I'm like a bullet magnet. Um, so, you know, I, it's not something I think about. Um, I, I, I do my thing the same way I think I would be doing it if I had never been injured. Um, 
but I had the mindset then that I have now where when I step out the door, especially on a kinetic type mission, um, I'm prepared to die. And that's, I'm, I'm fine with that. If I'm, it's kind of, you know, come back with your shield or on it. It's, that's part of my lifestyle. And I think that that's similar for most guys, particularly in this community, um, to, to be able to put yourself in that place. And if this is the way I'm going to go, this is the way I want to go. No, sure. And, and I think that coming to grips with your own mortality is something that those of us who have been in combat are all charged with, right? Like you understand the concept of mortality a lot better than most people do because you're forced to think about it more routinely. So that much I understand. I just, you know, as you called yourself a bullet magnet, it's like how many more times can you do this and still sort of get lucky? Yeah, hopefully I don't find that out. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the Purple Heart is one that, um, although obviously comes with a lot of honor, and rightfully so, is is not the one that we strive for, right? The the enemy marksmanship badge. Yeah. Um, so I've got plenty of those, and I would be uh, absolutely fine with not having to get any more. All right. Well, the third one was the one that ultimately uh, led to the amputation of your leg, and this was in 2013. So what happened? So, yeah, we're on the back end of the same deployment. Um, we maybe have two, three weeks left before we rip out. And um, we're getting ready for, you know, I'll use the word routine um, mission. And at this point, we're running operations, you know, training and conducting ops with several entities of the Afghan security apparatus. We're working with conventional ANA. We've got an ANA SF team with us. We're working with the Afghan National Police. We're working with the Afghan local police. We got a hodgepodge of guys. So it makes it really difficult to keep track of who's who when these guys are swapping in and out mm -hmm. every single mission. Um, Plus, you a, also had a whole new cast of people, right? Due to all the injuries, all those guys didn't return. Yeah, so we did have um, – really, we just had reduced numbers. We okay. did get a new team leader that came in and replaced our, our captain that was banged up. But other than that, we were pretty much just operating with a couple less bodies than normal. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Um, it was our ODA. We had an infantry uplift squad that was there working with us as well. And then a couple other enablers. Uh, so really, really small footprint. So we were pretty much just down, you know, a couple, two, three guys. When, when you're operating with a, with a footprint that small, that's, that's a pretty enormous, load that everyone else has to kind of pick up gotcha um which also was kind of part of me needing to get back to the guys asap was just knowing how stretched in everybody was and the impact that losing just a single body can have um going into this into this deployment or this into this next mission we're we're doing a um pre-mission brief pre-mission comms check and i'll never forget man we're getting ready to finish the, uh, the pre-mission brief. I'm standing next to my captain and I leave, I turn and I walk, I start walking towards my truck before we officially, you know, ready break. And I make it a halfway there and boom, I start hearing gunshots coming from directly behind me. And my initial thought was one of our Afghan counterparts just AD his weapon. Right. I mean, that wouldn't be that unheard of. But after the third, fourth, fifth round, I'm like, okay, no, we're someone's intentionally shooting. And uh, I, I hit the ground. I snapped my head around. And 
one of the Afghan police officers had jumped up on the back of a Ford Ranger that had a truck mounted PKM and he was opening fire into the crew into under the, into all of us. So at this point, seconds feel like minutes. Um, everything's happening in an extreme slow motion manner. And again, my training tells me to move to cover, eliminate the threat. And once again, I don't do that. There was one of our infantry uplift guys that was set to be one of our drivers. And he was standing maybe 10 feet in front of this gunner and um, kind of has the deer in the headlights thing going on. He's literally just standing there staring at him. At this point, most people are either running to cover or on the ground. So I move towards him and I get to him at a full sprint. I kind of put myself between the shooter and him and I end up kind of tackling him unintentionally. I just had so much momentum going. So I'm on top of this kid on the ground and that's when I get shot and I feel it in my right leg. It was like someone hit me with a sledgehammer. So I knew I was hit. Um, I didn't know the extent I drag him and myself behind a truck. And um, at this point, people are screaming. There's stuff all over the place. I, uh, I grab a rifle that was happened to be laying on the ground. At this point, several of us are engaging the gunman. Um, one of my teammates, rightfully so, is, is credited with taking him out with some really well accurately placed shots. So we eliminate the internal threat within maybe, I don't know, five or six seconds. But this was the initiation of a complex ambush. So we start taking rounds from outside of our camp as well. Um, at this point, with the immediate threat gone, I assess the infantry guy that I was still laying on top of, and he's totally fine. He's in shock, but he didn't have any actual injuries. I then assess myself. So I expose my right leg, rip the pants off, and my right leg is basically just hammered meat at this point. And um, I glance back to where I was initially hit to where I was now. And there's basically a, a river of blood flowing. So I knew that my femoral artery had been severed. And with that, I knew I probably had anywhere from, I don't know, five to nine minutes before I was going to be empty of blood. So um, moment, I, uh, I knew I was going to die completely certain of that I'm like yep this is probably it and i was surprisingly okay with that um now I, I talked earlier about kind of that that warrior mindset mm -hmm. you know with your shoulder on it and uh i remember thinking if i'm gonna if i'm going down i want to go down in combat surrounded by my my brothers but i also remember being extremely frustrated that this was the particular way i was going down was, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, after everything that happened to you outside the wire, to have it be internal like that where it's not actually combat, it's got to be infuriating. Yeah, very, very frustrating. You know, I just kept thinking, man, I taught you how to use that gun. Right. You just shot me with it, you know. Um, so it was it was a combination of frustration based on that, but then also um, being content with it as well. Um, that said training eventually kicked in at this point and I began treating myself. So I, I grab a tourniquet, I slap it on as tight as I can. Um, I noticed that I'm still bleeding. 
at this point, one of my teammates got to me, saw the injury. He slapped on a second tourniquet. Um, at that point, I pretty much told him and then anyone else that got to me to render me some medical attention that to, to get away from me. Like, uh, um, I'm not, I'm not making it through this. Go spend your time working on the guys that need help that you can actually help. Just looking around there, there are bodies all over the ground. So we suffered 11 U S casualties that day and about 20 Afghan casualties all in that same moment. How many KIA just out of curiosity? Two. Okay. So our brand new team leader, uh, captain Andrew Peterson keel, he was killed and our infantry squad, uh, squad leader, Staff Sergeant Rex Shad, he was killed. Um, ex- ex- excuse me, we actually had three because our uh, our soft NPC, our dog Bach, uh, was also killed. My captain had been standing literally right next to me before this happened, and while I'm being treated, I'm treating myself. He's not more than ten feet from me. Um, so I, I didn't want anyone to, to work on me. Well, Nick, let me ask you one question. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to, for the listener, remember you had decided to break rank early before the end of the brief to walk away. Ultimately, that ended up saving your life, didn't it? You know, there's no way to know. Um, I'd say that there's probably a fair chance that that's accurate. Um you know, had I been a better soldier and and waited there through the end of the brief, you know, maybe I'd be dead um, or maybe not. You know, maybe maybe I would have been just that much closer. and I would have been able to take some well-aimed shots earlier and prevented some other people from being injured or killed. You know, it's 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 impossible to know. But these are questions that I am left with having to answer um, daily. Do those I, questions bother you? I wouldn't say they bother me. Um, I try to use, you know, my, this experience as a lesson learned, use this vignette um, through other training events. What bothers me more than the fact that I walked away from the end of the brief early is my instinct to go for that infantry private, because on one hand that may have saved that kid's life, which is great. Um, On the other hand, if I had moved the cover and eliminated the threat, maybe other people would also would be alive, right? Maybe that kid would not be, maybe more would have been saved. That's the conundrum that I find myself having to answer for myself more often than anything else. Uh, Because I didn't follow my training, I didn't move the cover, eliminate the threat. I decided to once again, let my love for, a teammate supersede what I'm taught and what I train myself and others to do. Um, I'm left with the result of that decision. So I stay in touch with this kid, um, his family, they reach out to me usually right around the anniversary of this incident, which is actually coming up here in another eight or nine days. Um, so that's a reminder of, you know, in situations like that, there's usually not a right and a wrong decision. It's just different degrees of bad, right? Or different degrees yeah, of good. No, I, and what I'm, I don't want to keep poking at you on this, but it's the second time you've told me that you made a split second decision that ultimately 
you know, save the life of somebody else that you question as if to whether or not it was the right decision. Like you said, right or wrong might not be the word, but I would, I would argue if you measure the results of the decision, I think the process is correct. And isn't that what's important? I think what's important is to learn from the lessons. I think what's important is that we train to a particular set of standards and, and, and SOPs for a reason. And we develop these SOPs within a non-stressful environment so that our instincts are able to kick in and do what is assessed and analyzed to be the best possible decision to make. And even though what I did may have intervened and saved a life, it also may have cost others their lives. Um, so this is a circle that, that doesn't ever end, right. right? It just goes around and around and around. Um, that's just part of the, of the weight that I have to carry for the rest of my life. And I just try to use that experience to highlight good decisions or at least the outcomes, the positive outcomes of the decisions that were made. And then also let's not forget um, why we train a very particular way and what may have happened if other decisions were made, including my own. Well, I'll, I'll end this part of the discussion on this note. Um, And again, objective outsider here, Nick, that seems like a very robotic trained answer, which I understand and I get. And I would counter with the human answer is, in short, your decisions that ultimately impacted the lives of everyone around you for whatever the result is, aren't measured in whether they're right or wrong. They're measured in the value of who you are and you doing what you thought was right in that moment. And to that end, I I mean, I feel bad that you sort of carry around this burden. Um, And I don't know if feel bad is the right word. You know, it, it, it makes me want to reach out to you, you know, and, and sort of reassure you that what you did was was good and it was valid and it was it was the right thing. And I hate keep using the word right because I know it doesn't resonate with you the way it's supposed to. But, uh, you know, I just want you to know soldier to soldier that from the standpoint of when I hear the story objectively, you know, I would never question your integrity, motives, decision making. Um, even if the the outcome was different, I trust your process if there's any value in that. God, I appreciate that, Mark. All right, let's get back to you, uh, because you you were bleeding and you were refusing medical aid at that point. What's happening next? So I'm still I'm still bleeding, um, and I'm kind of in desperation mode. So I grabbed some combat gauze, you know, which kind of for those that don't know, I have kind of a tacky adhesive aspect to it, and um, I loosen up one of my tourniquets. I ball up this combat gauze. I ram it into the hunk of meat and bone that is was once my leg. And I'm trying to feel around for the femoral artery that's actually severed, which at this point, I really can't feel much. My fine motor skills are completely gone. All the blood is shunting inward to my organs to try to keep me alive. So I'm kind of working with these like meat mittens at this point. So I really don't feel much. I don't have much dexterity. I feel like I'm close to it. I'm kind of all the way up into my groin at this point, kind of through my, where my quad was or is. And I think I feel something. I kind of just go all in. I ram down as hard as I can. I re tighten the tourniquet on top of it, 
twist it as tight as I can. And then I actually pass out. Um, maybe, I don't know, four or five seconds. I come to, and I'm pretty certain at this point that my work here is done. I, I don't think there was much left for me to do to treat myself. So I kind of just drug myself in the direction of a couple of my other teammates that were laying in my vicinity and uh, just tried to comfort them. They injury, their injuries weren't as life-threatening as mine, but they were obviously in a lot of pain. So my focus was just on them and hey amen. Um, I made peace with God and myself and I was ready to go. And I wanted the last moments on, on this earth being uh, for them and to give them as much relief as I could. So what happens next? I mean, do you pass back out and wake up in a hospital somewhere? So unfortunately, because of the ongoing ambush, the first medevac bird couldn't land for somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes. Oh, from Jesus. The contact. So I'm on the ground quite a while. And um, I, I'm fading it out of consciousness the entire time. Eventually, I am on a helicopter. And um, Was anybody trying me, to give you aid at that point? Or are you just laying there and everybody else is responding to chaos? What do you remember about those moments fading in and out? Yeah, so at some point, once um, once the treatment got to a point where the guys could come back and reassess me. Um, someone did give me an IV. So I, I wasn't just left to die. You know, the guys, despite me telling them to, to, to get away from me, they, they didn't. And um, so, yeah, they kept checking up on me, checking up on my tourniquets. They gave me some fluids. Um, they, they did our tree. They did their triage, got us in the right categories, prepared for medevac. Um, I ended up on a bird. They fly me back to Fob Shank again, and that was basically based on proximity. So the flight to Shank, where the AOB was located, was a slightly shorter flight time than it was to get me to Bagram. So they went with speed versus level of care, right? right? Um, because at Shank, there was an FST located there, a forward surgical team, as opposed to a, a, a role one hospital at Bagram. Um, this comes into play here because the first bird had myself and a couple other guys on it. The second one came in right behind it. And uh, that FST was pretty much maxed out as far as their capabilities. So then they began sending the remaining birds straight to Bath. So at Shank, they get me on, they get me off the ta- off the bird onto a table. I obviously need blood bad. Um, they give me a blood transfusion and as it would have it, they gave me a transfusion with the wrong blood type. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm often asked, you know, are you angry about that? How did that happen? Like, how does that, how is that possible? And, uh, first off, I have no ill will towards any of the docs or medical staff that were there. Right. There was obviously was not malicious and those guys intervened and did whatever they, they could to save my life. And I'm grateful for that. Um, through the chaos, they basically mixed up my last name with my team sergeant's last name. We have similar last names and they pumped me full of his blood type, which is not mine. Oh God. So as you would imagine, my entire body shuts down, right? Liver, kidneys, everything's just completely deteriorating and they don't know what's wrong. So they throw me back on a helicopter and they send me to Bagram. And they tell the staff at Bagram, just be prepared to receive the body. Like, there is no way this dude is surviving the flight. And it was maybe a five, seven-minute flight. Um, 
And as they would have it, they would, they would be kind of right. Cause I coded a couple times on the bird. They get me there. Um, I'm in and out of, I don't know, death, I guess maybe. And, uh, they get me into surgery while I was on the flight, the staff at, at shank realized what they had done. So they flush me, they start pumping me full of my actual blood type, get me to surgery. They take off my right leg below the knee, just trying to minimize the amount of damage that my body is trying to recover from. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was face to face with death and, um, you know, as, as stubborn as I am, I think that that just, uh, just wasn't, wasn't ready to go quite yet. So I ended up at, at Bagram for five or six days. And, uh, before I'm stable enough to fly me out, they fly me to Germany. I'm, I'm at Germany one night. They take off more of my leg right up to my knee again, just trying to minimize the amount of damage my body's trying to recover from as well as minimize how much infection that my body's trying to deal with having laid on the ground in Afghanistan with a completely ripped apart leg for 60, 90 minutes. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty dirty country. There's bacteria everywhere. <laughs> so infection had set in, it was running rampant through my leg. I'm at Germany one night, next day they fly me to Walter Reed. Um, I get into the intensive care unit and, um, now are you awake chief, for any of this or is this all second information for you? I'm in and out of consciousness. Um, I've got, I've got glimpses of memories of my time at Bagram, my time at Germany, my flight okay. to Walter Reed, um, just kind of sporadic flashes of memories. Um, but I will never forget when I, when I get to ICU and the, the chief ortho doc comes in and he looks at me and he goes, Hey man, this is my name. Um, most of my staff here wants to take your leg off at the hip and just eliminate the affection and get on with recovery. He's like, I think I can save more of your leg, but it's going to be a fight. And I need you to be in this fight with me. And I'm all whacked out on ketamine and Dilaudid. I barely know where I am, but I do remember looking up at him and saying, yeah, man, let's do it. And he said, okay. So at that point it was, usually three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm in surgery and they were just hacking off my leg incrementally cutting above the infection, pumping me full of antibiotics, rinse and repeat three days a week, for six, seven, eight weeks, oh, something like God. that. So I end up having like 30 or so surgeries on my, on my, uh, on my right leg. It was somewhere around the time that I ended up in out of the ICU and in inpatient status, but I also realized I had taken a round to my lower left leg, which um, I didn't know until that point. And the only reason I found out was I went to move my foot and I couldn't. And it was because the nerves had been severed. So I have what the, the docs refer to as drop foot, where basically your foot's just laying there dead. And I can also remember being more angry about that than I was about them incrementally hacking off my right leg. Because I had known that my right leg's gone. I'm going to be left with whatever I got left. But I'm going to need this left leg. This is going to be my engine. So I was constantly telling the docs, hey, man, like, fix my left leg. I don't even care about my right one. Like, do whatever you got to do over there. But I'm going to need this left one. And they were like, it's going to come back. Just the nerves have to regenerate. It just takes time. You know, take it easy. You could probably tell I'm not very known for my patience, so that wasn't an acceptable <laughs> answer for me. 
Um, eventually that did come back, you know, it was a, a long process, but, and then also eventually they got to a point where they had gotten ahead of the infection and enough of it had, uh, been removed from my body that I was left with, um, a femur that's about four inches in length. Um, so now comes the point where I actually begin kind of my more proactive recovery. Um, I dare to ask the question, even though I probably know the answer. Are at any point in time, are you saying I want to go back to my team or have you reconciled that your future in the military is coming to an end at some point? I knew right away I was going back to the team. Um, <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't going to go back as fast as I did the first times, but, um, but I, w- I knew I was going back and this is, this is early on. I'm still, I'm still dealing with surgeries. I'm still on all kinds of drugs. And my father tells this story the best because he was there with me during my initial recovery portion at Walter Reed. Uh, As part of the Walter Reed medical recovery system, you meet with just about every type of medical professional there is. And that includes behavioral health and psychs and all these guys. And they come in every now and then and check up on you and make sure you're good and whatnot. And uh, I'm I'm voicing, you know, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm, I'm going back to my team. And the doc, the psych doc tells my father, He's like, hey, man, um, Nick doesn't really know where he is, like really, where he is right now and really what's going on. Right? He's got this envision that he's going to go back to being a, an operator on a team and all sorts of stuff. And just be aware and be prepared that at some point the light switch is going to flip on and he's going to realize the severity of the situation. And then that might result in a, a really drastic deterioration of his mindset and psychological well-being. So they were just trying to prep my father for this somewhat inevitable dive into a really dark place and uh my father just looked at the doc and said hey doc you know, I, I hear what you're saying i appreciate it but um he knows where he is and what's going on this is just kind of who he is um which most of the psych docs didn't buy that but my father knew he knew me and he knows me so he was just kind of like hey man i got it but i think i think he's going to be good so to answer your question yeah man i had that mindset um extremely early on i didn't know how i was going to do it um i didn't know if it was possible physically administratively i had a lot of unknowns but um i had my mind made up pretty much right away to that end um once you start the rehab process are, are you disillusioned at a point that it wouldn't happen because the rehab is so tough I don't think I was ever detracted from my goal. I, I will say, um, even as a guy who's going through recovery as an amputee, my understanding of the differences between amputees was, was ignorant. And I remember going into the, 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 uh, Matsy, they call it at Walter Reed, which is the military uh, amputee training center. Maybe, um, it's this giant indoor training facility. Um, and seeing below knee amputees and seeing how athletic they were and what they were doing. And I'm literally sitting there with no knee as a, as a very, very short above knee amputee looking at these guys like, Oh yeah. Like if this guy can do that, then I can do that. I, I, I didn't recognize the difference between having a knee and not having a knee. And I, I tell, I, I tell people this often, it's really not the loss of the limb. It's the loss of the joint that makes sure. the difference. Yeah. 
because nowadays we can replicate a femur or a tibia pretty easily, but we just haven't gotten to a point where you can replicate the ankle, the knee, or the hip, right? So the loss of the joint is what makes the difference. It, so I didn't recognize that until I got on to a prosthetic and started trying to do more dynamic stuff. And I was like, oh man, this is actually you know really hot. Um, but I was still set on my course. It was just, okay, it's going to take a little bit more work than I really thought. And uh, I, I was definitely ignorant to how much work that, that really was going to be. Um, I would say that as a two-legged guy, I had a strong work ethic. And, you know, I've got plenty of accolades or whatever to, to, to show that and that I'm proud of and things that I've done um, as a two-legged guy that require work and required hard work. But it wasn't until I, I took off down this journey that I realized the real difference between working hard and working like an absolute lunatic towards something, all in a completely relentless, completely unreasonable. Um, working to that degree was something I was not exposed to until I was going through my recovery. And it's something I promote where it, you know, I, I'd like to think that it's possible for people to dial themselves into that amount of work without having to get your legs shut off by a machine gun, right? Or right, without yeah. having to go through some devastating traumatic event. I don't know if that is possible, right? That certainly was the trigger for me, but I'd like to think that it's there it, within people. If you're, if you're able to dig down to that level of commitment and work ethic that you didn't think existed, you know, without having to suffer some traumatic event in your life. When is the first time you talk to somebody from the special ops community uh, about coming back to the teams and their response and the likelihood of it? I mean, you know, at this point, a lot of the senior guys have seen people come and go due to injuries and, and uh, wounds and combat and whatnot. Why were they more open to you coming back? So I'm not sure if they were, if they were, if they were open to me coming back in the sense that they thought it was something that was possible. I was in contact with my command and my teammates and everybody throughout my entire process at Walter Reed. I was at Walter Reed for about a year and I was in constant communication with my command, with our strength and conditioning coaching staff, with our dietitians, with all these guys, they all knew what my goal was. Um, it wasn't until I got back to Bragg, I got back to my unit, and I was there maybe a day and I sat down with my battalion commander and battalion sergeant major. And they said, you know, hey, it's great to have you back, man. You look great. You know, what, what do you want to do, man? And I told them, and I had been voicing this whenever I talked to anybody, but I said, I'm, I'm, I want to make a run at getting back to the team. And they said, okay, cool. Um, are you ready to try to do that right now? And I was like, absolutely not. I'm still really early on in my recovery. Um, so I need a job. I would request to be a full-time combatives instructor within our advanced skills company. I grew up doing combat sports. I trained and competed in jujitsu and boxing. It was a great fit for me to be active and to, I needed to work. Um, they granted that request. So I became a full-time hand-to-hand combat instructor. And uh, then I was, I was still aggressively working on my rehab. And at this point there was a shift, you know, I'm working at Walter Reed. I'm working with their staff, their PTs and whatnot. And they're great. Um, it's a different caliber and different level when you're working with the strength and conditioning coaches that we have in group, right? These guys, their pedigree comes from professional sports, the Olympic committee, whatnot. So I'm, I'm operating at a higher level and, um, 
that was my life for about six, eight months. You know, I was teaching classes. I was training and competing in jujitsu myself to keep my craft shop. And then I was in the gym training two or three times a day, um, nonstop, like a lunatic until I started making some, some, some substantial progress. And then, you know, right around that eight month, block, I, I went to my command and I said, Hey, I'm, I think I'm ready to take a shot at this thing. And, um, there really wasn't a laid out pipeline for me or for anybody, you know, they had, obviously there's some army physical fitness tests that they can have me do, but they wanted to make sure I was all encompassing, good to go to go back as an 18 series guy on a team. So it started off, you know, APFT, 12 mile ruck, kind of our standard physical events that we have. Um, they had me do a proficiency evaluation. So I went back to the 18 Bravo committee and I ran through a series of evaluations with them to make sure I was still shop on my job. Um, I went through another psych eval because at this point, most people around me think you're freaking nuts. Concerned that I'm out of my mind. Yeah. I mean, legitimately have concerned. So I do a psyche eval, and, you know, the doc's like, hey, man, this guy's no more crazy than he was before. He's no more crazy than the rest of the crazy guys that we have in this organization. Um, he's, he's, he's good. Um, so that process took maybe two or three months um, total. And I got to say, man, my command, you know, they were super supportive. They, they kept giving me these opportunities to demonstrate my abilities to do the things I needed to do. But I will also say that I think that for most of them in the back of their minds, they were thinking that we're going to give this dude a shot, but we don't think that we'll actually have to come to a decision point on this, right? At some point, something is going to detract him or something is going to be too difficult for him to do. So we won't have to cross that bridge. And, um, after I just, I, I kept knocking things out and, they gave me my last physical assessment, which at the time was referred to as the operator readiness test, which was an evaluation that third group put together specifically for wounded guys to give them a chance to demonstrate their physical abilities. Um, at this point, it's now used as, a, as an evaluation metric for everybody. Um, and I passed that. And when I took that, when I took that event, I had the entire third group command team there for the entire event, my entire team, a bunch of other guys or probably 20, 30 dudes that were there. Um, and I complete the last event and I'm completely exhausted. And um, command sergeant major comes over and he had just taken the same evaluation the day before with a buddy of mine that had been shot through the hand. And he was going through the same type of assessment to get back onto a team. Command sergeant major did it with him just as kind of a battle buddy thing. And he comes over to me and he's like, Hey man, um, you know, I just took this yesterday. He's like, if I wasn't here to see you do this with my own two eyes, I would not believe that you just did that. So I said, okay, um, thank you, Sergeant Major. Um, can I go back to my team now? <laughs> and uh, he looked over at the group commander and group commander just kind of gave him a nod and said, hey, Sergeant Major, this is your call, but I'm not sure how you're going to tell this guy no. So uh, he said, yeah, man, you're good. Um, he drafted my orders the next day and then I was back on that same ODA, you know, about a week later and they were already pretty far into their training cycle because about six weeks after that, I was back in Afghanistan on deployment. 
It's unreal, Nick. I mean, it really is. Like, I, I you know, you, you glossed over so much of the hard part of it, and and I know it wasn't as easy as you made it seem. Uh, just your nature kind of makes things matter of fact, very task oriented, right? This is the hur- hurdle in front of me. Let me clear it. Move on to the next one. But um, oh, from start to beginning, when you first get to Walter Reed to when you get back to Afghanistan, how long of a time period is that? About two years. <sighs> About two years. That's which, really quick. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it is really quick. And, you know, every injury is different. Everyone responds different. But I can remember being at Walter Reed and talking to some other single above the knee guys that had been amputees for years and years and years and i was like hey man how long is it going to take for this just to be normal and they all have kind of a different answer but i kind of i kind of calibrated it myself and i kind of came to around the seven eight year mark was when it just becomes normal um which is kind of ironic because i'm i'm right around that i was gonna say that's where you are now right it's 2013 you got injured and and here you are so um, yeah, so it was early on. Two years, I was still very much in the uh, infantile stages of trying to figure out uh, how to do stuff as a one-legged guy. Now, I mentioned in the intro that at some point in time you went to warrant officer school. What, how and why and when did that come about? So I, um, let's see, deployed back, back to Afghanistan my first time as an amputee 2015, came back, reset, deployed to uh, Eastern Africa after that, came back. At that point, um, my wife, who's also active duty, she came down on orders for Fort Campbell. So I transferred groups because of that from the fifth. Um, I was I was interested in the warrant thing right around that time. It was actually on my Africa deployment that um, I started to look at that as an option. Um, however, because I transferred groups it wasn't something I could pursue right away. I needed to kind of build up my reputation, so to speak within fifth group, because if I were to transition a warrant, I'd be coming back as a fifth group guy. And these guys knew nothing about me. Um, so I had to put in some time and as an enlisted guy. So I came to fifth group, I went straight over to the Jedberg company. Um, did that for a year, did another rotation over there with them. And uh, when I got back from that, I decided that, uh, you know, I felt like I had been around fifth group long enough for me to at least submit a request to go warrant, um, which I did. And, uh, you know, that, that, that caught a lot of attention there. Uh, there wasn't an amputee that had attempted to go warrant as an SF guy before. So, you know, anytime you're the first to do something, it, it tends to catch att- attention. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, doing anything unprecedented potentially increases some risk. So decision makers have to evaluate that, which they did, uh, decided they're going to give me a shot. So I went to the warrant course in, uh, in January of, uh, of 19 graduated in May. And, um, I was drawn to it for several reasons that, to answer your question. Um, you know, the warrant officer on, on the ODA is tasked with, with, with several things, but, one of the predominant things is we provide the continuity on the team. So when you have detachment commanders that are rotating on and off the team every two years, you have the team sergeant that's rotating on and off that position, usually around every two years, the warrant is there and he's there. He's expected to be on that same team for five or six years. So while the, the guy that's in charge, the captain and the guy that actually runs the team, the team sergeant, while those guys are coming and going, the warrant is there to keep the 
the train moving forward and the warrants there looking long-term managing long-term training, long-term personnel moves, et cetera. Um, and to be a decent or good warrant, you, you have to have experience and you have to have the ability to step up and voice your opinion when you see something that you don't agree with, but then also be able to do it in a way that's receptive. And, um, you know, the, the NCO core, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but it's the, you know, it's the backbone of what we do. Like those are the guys that make stuff happen. That said, decisions are typically made by officers. Um, so I wanted to be in a position where I was still one of the boys. I was still operational, still on a team, but also be in a position where I could potentially positively influence uh, change. We mentioned that uh, you got married along the way. When did this happen? How did you meet your wife? I'm just curious between all this that was going on. Did you know her before your injury? So I did. Yeah, we knew each other um, before I was injured. We trained at the same MMA gym. Um, We worked together every now and then. And she was actually deployed to Afghanistan um, the same time I was. Okay. So she had a front row seat to all of my injuries. Um, you know, she was in the hospital there when they were expecting to just receive the body. Um, we weren't dating per se at that point, but we knew each other and, um, you know, we stayed in contact and through my recovery, you know, she was there for me and whatnot. And, um, you know, that, that developed into us, you know, kind of becoming a thing. And it was, it was, um, She's an impressive, an impressive person, you know, to be able to be there in the early stages, the, the very beginning stages of a relationship. And I'm at my absolute lowest point, um, you know, that she became a, a huge source of strength for me and, uh, you know, still is to this day. So, mm-hmm. well, um, when she found out you were freaking, this. when she found out you were freaking nuts and still stayed around, that should have been a good sign for you. <laughs> Yeah, she's uh, she's just as crazy as I am. Oh, well, so that's we do, good. We line up. Yeah, it works out well. We balance each other out. Exactly. At some point between all the insanity, there is some sense of normalcy. That's good stuff. So uh, you're still on active duty now. Uh, I mean, what's the future for you as a above-the-knee amputee that's uh, in the special ops community? I mean, do you? I, I know you're not going to gear it down at any point in time, but do you know where the end is for you? You know, I, I tell myself that, I want to stay on the team and I want to stay operational as long as possible. And I think that's the goal for most of us. But the, the real, the real answer is I'm going to stay on the team, stay operational for as long as the guys want me to be there. Um, I'm not derelict to the fact that I I have a limitation to deal with. It's a word that I don't enjoy saying, but it's the reality of it. And I have to, I have to work twice as hard as the next guy every single day. It's like 18 Bravo math. I have half the legs. I have to work twice as hard. Um, and I recognize the fact that I'm, I'm forcing my body to do things in ways that it wasn't intended to do. So I do think that that clock may be ticking a little faster for me, but that being said, um, my training and my lifestyle is, uh, is one of discipline and it's a sophisticated program that has been developed over time with the help of a lot of really smart individuals. And, um, 
that's what just is what I consider to be a requirement. And, you know, I, I masked a lot, man, you train, you're training two, three times a day. You're constantly in the books, all this stuff. It's like, yeah, man, well, I can leave this lifestyle anytime I want. If I woke up tomorrow and said, I can't do it anymore. I can drop a medical retirement packet and be done. Right. So me being in this lifestyle is a choice that I have, but it's a choice that comes with some responsibility. And as long as I am here, um, that's, that's what I have to do. So I love what I do. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I don't see myself getting out, you know, before the 20 year mark. And then, you know, at that point, I get to that 18, 19 year point. It's, you know, so obviously some decisions that need to be made, but I don't foresee myself getting out prior to that. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for every day that I get to walk into this team room and work alongside these guys. It's truly a privilege. Nobody has the right to serve in the military. Nobody has the right to be on an ODA. Um, it's one that you work towards, but then you have to work to stay every single day, just as hot as you did to get there. And that's, you know, that's a privilege that we have. And that's just the way I view it. Um, so I don't know, man, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm going to enjoy my time that I'm here. I'm going to positively impact the guys to my right and left as, mo as, as best as I can. And, um, you know, we'll see what the future holds. You talked about some of the things that some of the memories that stick with you, some of the things that, you know, decisions that, uh, you know, still weigh on your mind. How are you mentally with everything? I know those things will never go away, but part of what we're charged to do of those of us who have come back from combat is to make sure that what's going on between our ears is still, uh, you know, the most serviceable part of our bodies, so to speak, because obviously the epidemic uh, in our nation right now and our veterans and what's going on. So how do you kind of uh, make peace with yourself on a daily basis with some of these things that, that have stuck with you? Yeah, man, oh, man, such, such a great question. Uh, really more to the broader sense. Um, the, the negative stigma of, of having me a mental or psychological issue is something that we are still very slow to get over, yep. you know, and you're in a hyper type a personality environment. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Drive on, drive on, drive on. We're slowly getting to a point, I think where it's okay to recognize that, man, I got an issue. I need some help. Right. And it's, it's not going to affect my ego, my pride. and It's not going to detract me from my career. I, we're, we're, we're late to that game, but I feel like we're making progress towards it. Um, it's also very difficult to remain objective on yourself. That's sure, really yeah, tough sure, to do. Yeah. So I lean on the guys around me. I lean on my teammates. I lean on my family. Um, I have those, those difficult conversations with them. And it's usually at the end of a deployment. And when we get back and we're discussing stuff and we're refitting, I'll sit everybody down and I'll, be, and I'll just be point blank. I need the, I need the no shit truth. Right. Are you glad I was there or was I a liability? What, where, where are we at? Because I can't see it. And to this point, it's been nothing but um, we felt better with you being there than we would have been without you being there. So as long as I continue to have that feedback as far as my performance, then I know I'm in a good place. Because the last thing I'm going to accept for a day is to be a liability for the guys next to me. It's, it, this isn't about me just wanting to do what I want to do because I want to do it. 
And, you know, that was kind of my initial mindset was that was very competitive and stubborn. Now I am getting back to the team because nobody is going to determine my future, but me, right. It was, it was about me. And once I started making some progress, it was like, no, that, that, that's not going to cut it, man, because you got nine or 10 other guys around you that have expectations of you. So it's about them. Do they want you there? Right. Are you, are you an asset to them? And then that's when I had to really dig down deep and say, you know what, I may want this more than anything, but is it, is it what's best for them? Um, and I didn't, I was, there's was no way I can know that until I started actually doing it. So I feel like I keep, I, I have a great support system around me that I'm able to be open and transparent with and vice versa. Uh, I don't feel like I suffer from any traumatic type psychological or mental issues or overwhelming stress or trauma. Uh, yeah. You know, I got a lot of memories that I, that I think about at times, but what I focus on is how to use those experiences to help mitigate something bad happening in the future to somebody else. Nick, you know, it's just an incredible story, man. I mean, honestly, uh, hearing you tell it, uh, you know, with the passion and fervor that you do is, is incredible. Um, and I know, as I said earlier, you, you, you probably skipped over some of the deeper, darker, harder times because it's not in your nature to, to complain or tell people about uh, the hard times because, again, that's not what you you were trained to do. But I, I know and I, I think anybody who listens to this podcast on the regular knows that there were some dark moments. I'm glad you came out on top, brother. I'm glad that you're in a spot right now where uh, the future is bright for you, for, for your wife, for your family, uh, and that you uh, you still have good things going on because – um, it's, it's an inspiration to others, right? I mean, even people who haven't do aren't amputees and don't have, you know, a lot of physical ailments, seeing you overcome all the mental part of this, I think still gives a lot of us hope and gives a lot of, a lot of vets out there reasons to keep pushing forward. So, uh, I certainly thank you for all your honesty and your candor and, and sharing the story with us, man. Thanks, Mark. I, I appreciate the time. And just to, just to wrap, man, you hit the, the mental and physical piece and, you know, oftentimes, through my recovery, it's assumed that the physical hurdles I had to get over was the most difficult. And, uh, you know, that obviously was challenging, but the mental side of the game is what I think is what's critical is being able to stay positive, but also stay productive, stay realistic, but keep yourself in that mindset that, you can, you can do this. There is a way to do it. And it's going to, you're going to have to go through hell potentially to find out what that solution is, but it's there. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with reaching out for assistance for any issue that you have, right? No matter what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a support team and I still do around me that I would not be where I am today without them. Incredible to hear brother. Certainly again, uh, so happy for you. Uh, so happy that the, the blessings that are around you are, are still there every single day. And you keep fighting the fight both from the physical standpoint and the mental standpoint. And uh, keep leading the way, brother, because we need more guys like out, out there like you telling your story so that others can learn from it and know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, man. So um, I, I know uh, at, at, at your core as a, a Bostonian and a Red Sox fan, as a New Yorker and a Yankees fan, I should probably dislike you, but I've certainly enjoyed <laughs> Getting this chance to know you, brother, and you're one of the finer Bostonians I've ever come across, man. I, again, soldier to soldier, I love you, man. Certainly thank you for everything you've done for us. Right on, Mike. I appreciate the time. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. 
hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. It's a new day, and it's coming at you fast. With Comcast Business, you'll have what you need to take on every twist and turn, like the flexibility to control multiple Wi-Fi networks from anywhere, a cybersecurity solution to help protect all your connected devices, and the power of the nation's largest gig speed network, all supported by a dedicated team available 24-7. Every day in business is a big day. Comcast Business will keep you ready for what's next. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.